Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those that are here, and if anybody's on their way to bring them quickly, we ask you to guide and lead as we look at this chapter and show us what you would have us to see from it and, and just bless this time in a great way. In your son's name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fenced up to the heaven, of people great and tall, and children of the Anakins, whom you know, and of whom you have heard say, who can stand against the children of Anak? Understand, therefore, this day, that the Lord your God is he which goes over before you as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before your face. So shall you drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said. Speak not you in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord does drive them out from before you. Not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart do you go to possess their land, but the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God, does drive them out before you, and that he may perform the word which he swore unto your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, and the Lord your God gives you that the Lord your God gives you not this good land to possess for your own righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked people. So we'll stop there for the moment. So it starts out, Hear, O Israel, you are to pass over Jordan this day and go and possess a nation greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fenced to the heavens. So he's calling Israel to pay attention. And this has been Moses' theme all the way through this book. Hear, remember, uh, listen to God. And he's reiterating, and that's the name of the book, Deuteronomy, Second Giving. And so he's giving the laws, he's given the history, and he says, listen, you are about to pass over into the promised land. And remember, 40 years earlier, their parents were, were supposed to go into the promised land and said, oh no, we can't take these people, and we're not going in. And they were said, okay, uh, if we go in, our children will die. And God said, fine, we'll go, you'll wander in the desert for 40 years, you'll die and your children to go in and take the land. So here we are, 40 years later, they're about ready to cross Jordan. And God is saying, you're going to take nations, and we look at this, that are greater and mightier than you, and cities that are great and fenced to the heavens. So he says, you're going in to, to battle people, and what he's basically saying, you're the underdog. You don't deserve to win. You shouldn't be winning. They're, 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 uh, stronger than you are, they're greater than you are, they've got big cities and they've got big walls. And we think about this, how many times does God use little things to do great victories? Even in our day and age, oftentimes what I have noticed is God will use the ones who look weak and, and ineffective to do great things for the kingdom. And we go back, he sends the children of Israel in, and he says, these, these nations are mightier than you. You're not supposed to take them, but I'm going to give them to you. We go to David. David's fighting a giant. There's total mismatch. This giant has killed everybody he's ever fought in these battles, and David wins the battle. And we see this over and over again in the scriptures. 
even when you look at something as simple as Christianity changing the world. How does a group of 12 men and a couple hundred other people that have been following Jesus turn the world upside down and affect the world without God? It doesn't happen. And God does this over and over. And even today, he's saying, I'm going to choose this person. This person who looks so, so frail and insignificant, doesn't look like they could, could can teach or win a soul, and that person brings somebody to Christ. And this is something that is so wonderful, the way God uses us. And here with Israel, he's saying, you're going to go in, you're going to take these. Then verse 2, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakins whom you know and whom you have heard say, who shall stand against before the children of Anak? These were considered giants. I don't know how big these guys were, but they were considered giants. And you know, I don't think we're talking 10 or 12 feet, but I think you're talking 8, 10, eight, to, eight to 10 feet like Goliath was. You know, Goliath, Goliath stood at 9, uh, uh, what was it, 9, 9-6. So compared to most people, he was a giant. And so he's saying, you're going to go up against these people. They're bigger than you are. Their cities are, are strong and mighty. They're fenced. They're protected. And we've talked about this, how... We think about walled cities, and in our day, a walled city would not mean anything because we could blow a hole in any, in any walled city with a couple sticks of dynamite or a well-placed bomb, and you'd have no wall left to defend your city. But in their day, when you don't have the, the explosives that we have, a wall was a very big defense because you had to climb over it, go under it, or beat the door down. Either way, you still had limited access wherever you came in. And so it's saying these are protected cities. They're big cities. They're tall people. They're big people. And basically he's saying, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't stand a chance. That's what he's building up to. You know, if it wasn't for me, you're not going to stand. Verse 3 goes, understand therefore this day that the Lord your God is he which goes before you. A consuming fire, he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before your face and drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said. So God's got done saying they're bigger than you are, they're, they're stronger than you are, they've got these big cities, but understand this, learn this, know this. God says, I am going before you. Why can we be victorious in anything God asks us to do? Because God goes before us. How can we be successful when we teach or preach or even share the gospel? God goes before us. He is the one that does it, if, and we aren't the ones that do anything. If we think it's us that's doing something, God will finally just say, okay, let me see how much you can do without me. And he'll watch us flounder and fail okay. and, and not have the success that we have with him. But God goes first, and it says he's a consuming fire. Consuming, devouring. You think of some of these uh, news reports you see of forest fires, you know, especially the big ones where the, it's just racing along, consuming everything in its path. And God says, that's the type of fire I am. I go through and I consume everything in the path. And he destroys everything in the path, annihilates. 
and he brings them down and he drove the Canaanites out. And when, and when we get to uh, Joshua, we're going to see how God came in and drove them out in battles. Battles that they shouldn't have won, starting with Jericho. Yeah, Jericho was a decisive victory. But even before that, we go back to Egypt. He destroyed the entire army of Egypt when they tried to follow them through the Red Sea and God drowned them. We see them fighting against the, the uh, other nations that they fight against. And over and over again, God gives them victories where there was no way that they should win. A group of slaves don't know anything about fighting a war, fighting armies that know how to fight, people who know how to fight. And they win. And they keep winning. And God is saying, I'm the one fighting for you. Don't think it's you. And this is what he wants to say to us as Christians. When we go out and we do things, we have victories for God. He wants us to make sure we remember it's him. It's not us. Because if we want to think that it's us, God will eventually just step back and say, okay, let me see, let me see how good you are without my help. And then we see how good we are without his help. And it says, he will drive them out and destroy them quickly. And the Lord has said this unto you. Then in verse 4, he says, Speak not in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, God does drive them out from before you. He says, Don't get proud and think it's what you are doing good. Okay, and as we look at the children of Israel, we can know that they're not go- that they're not doing good, and we're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. But how many times did they rebel against God? Over and over and over again, they rebelled against God, going all the way back to while they were still in Egypt. Every time Pharaoh made life harder on them, they griped at Moses, "What did you come here for? You're just making life worse." How many times do we do that same thing? As God starts working in our life. Satan starts doing a little bit of attacking, making life miserable for us, and we kind of turn to God and go, God, what do you think you're doing? You're supposed to be making things better. And it's getting worse. All of us have done that at some point or, or many points in our life where we just turn around, God, this uh, isn't working. Uh, you're, you know, I'm doing what you're telling me to do, and look at how bad things are getting. And this is what God's telling them. You know, you don't deserve this. This is all my mercy that you're getting this, this, this land. You know, the minute they cross over the Red Sea, what do they do? They complain that they don't have water and God brought them out there to kill them. They get to Mount Sinai and Moses is gone for only 40 days and they make a golden calf and start worshiping the golden calf. They go a little ways out and say, we're hungry, we're starving to death. You know, we miss, we miss all the good food in Egypt, which they didn't have good food in Egypt. They were slaves. So they didn't have a lot of good food in Egypt. And yet God says, okay, let me give you manna. A little while later, they're griping that they're thirsty again. Then they're, then they're griping that manna's not enough. And God gives them qu- all these things that go on over and over. The, the leaders rise up against Moses, uh, and God swallow, opens up the earth and swallows the ones that were in rebellion, uh, Korah and his family that was in rebellion. And they keep going on like this over and over again. Balaam sends, tells Balak to send in the girls so they can get the guys to start worshiping idols. They do that, and God, st- God sends punishment to them. And this has been their pattern over and over again. And sometimes we will look at this pattern and go, well, how can they do such a, you know, how could they do that? They saw God work, and then they still rejected him. Well, how many times do we see God at work in our life, and we turn around and we reject him? 
Now maybe it's not quite as vivid and, and open as the Israelites' activities were, but how many times has God provided the finances to pay the bills, the, the, the friend that you needed to help you at just the right time, or the, the vehicle that you needed just all of a sudden came there at a very good price or even free, you know, and then a week or two later we're griping about God, you know, to God, God, you're just never doing anything for me. Same thing the Jewish the Jews did here. You know, God, you just aren't you just aren't one that, and God's warning them, don't think it's because of your righteousness, because you are not righteous. And we want to keep that in mind. Jesus told the rich young ruler, There's you call me a good good teacher, there is none good but God. You know, for all of sin to come short of the good. Our, all our righteousness is filthy rags. Whatever term you want to use, our righteousness does not stand before God. And God never rewards us for our righteousness because in his terms, our righteousness is nothing. But he says the reason you're going in and taking this land is they are more evil than you are. And I'm going to use you to judge them. And the reason that he went to judge them is, is because Abraham, the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because they deserved it, not because they were even all that much better, because they really weren't much better than these nations that they were pushing out. Because every time they turned around, they worshipped idols. Every time they turned around, they were disobeying God and griping and complaining to God. But God says, They're, they are so bad, I'm going to use you to get rid of them. And it's my mercy. God's mercy is why we get blessed. Because he does not give us what we deserve. And, you know, I, and I've said this before, I hear so many people go, I just want what I deserve. And my answer to them is always, you do not want what you deserve, because if you get what you deserve, you'd be in hell right this moment, if you got what you deserved. God gives us mercy, and we should be so happy that he gives us mercy. And if we really start thinking about it, if God is giving us mercy, and he does, we should be showing mercy to others. This is why it should be somewhat easy to love other people because God loves us. He gives us mercy, and all he's asking us is to show that same lifestyle to others. Now, is that easy to do for us? Not usually. It's hard for us to show people love and mercy, even though we get it. Now, eventually, as we work at it and we start growing in it, it becomes easier it becomes easier to give forgiveness. It becomes easier to give grace. It gives, becomes easier to love people. Usually, though, it comes at great price to us as God runs us through the mill and shows us how much mercy and love he's giving us. And then we start realizing, oh, he really does love me. You know, sometimes God's got to let us go through a lot so we can come to the realization that he really loves us. He loved, we love him because he first loved us. And it says, verse 5, Not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart do you possess the land. Okay, so he's reiterating this. And when God starts repeating something in the same chapter, same verse, we need to be paying attention to it. And in this case, he's doing it again. Not because of anything you've done. Okay, but... He says, for the wickedness of those nations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you, that he may perform the word that the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here he did it. He's repeating it. 
And this time he tells them why he's being gracious to them. Nothing that you did, but because of Abraham, and basically goes all the way back to Abraham, but because Abraham was faithful to me, I am blessing you. And here we are, some 400, uh, at this point, 470 years after Abraham has died, after Isaac's birth, and God is saying, you're getting this land because of what I told Abraham. This is the good news for those who raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Maybe not that particular child, but as it goes down, the blessing of God will flow. Abraham, the children of Israel are being born 470 years after Abraham, after the birth of Isaac. Why? Because of Abraham's obedience to God. And God's saying, I'm going to bless your children. And it is wonderful to look at history and see how when people raise up godly children, how blessed they are. The Adams family, not the TV show, but the founding fathers of the Adams, uh, their mother raised, I think it was nine kids, and most of them went into service for the government or for God. And then the grandchildren did the same thing, and the great-grandchildren did the same thing. There were generation after generation of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that were serving God as pastors and missionaries and and in and, and public service. This is the power of being able to raise our children up correctly. That does not mean that they will not stray. It does not mean that there will be bad that there won't be any bad apples in your in your family. But God's will and teaching will keep them from hitting to the worst that they could possibly be. Because in the back of their mind will always be ringing the messages that they were taught as a child. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And it never is easy for somebody who's got all of that stuck in their brain to go out and do wrong. They can and do, but there's always that nagging guilt back there that they know better. And here God is saying, it's because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, understand, therefore, that the Lord your God gives you, gives you not this good land to possess for your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. So now this is the third time he said, you're not getting this because you deserve it. He's really trying to hammer this home. You don't deserve this land. All right? And why did he say to them specifically on this one? You are a stiff-necked people. Every time God gives you a chance to do the right thing, you do the wrong thing. Every time God gives you a chance to serve righteousness and, 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 uh, and holiness and sanctification, you do the wrong thing. And Moses is going to spend much of the rest of this chapter reminding them of their examples <laughs> of their disobedience. And this book goes, is quite a history book on, on their walk. Verse 7, remember and forget not how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you did depart out of the land of Egypt until you came unto this place, you have been, a rebellion, have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry with you to, destroy and to have destroyed you when I was gone up into the mount to receive the tablets of stone, even the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with, with you 
Then I abode on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spoke unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, even the tablets of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get you down quickly from hence. For your people, which you have brought forth out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves and are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molten image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke unto me and saying, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under the heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So we're going to stop at 14 for just a moment. So here it is, in God, and Moses is reiterating history. And we, those of us who have been sitting in this class for four years know, know this history. But we're going to repeat it because Moses repeats it. And he says, you, you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you did depart out of Egypt. And this takes us all the way back to uh, Moriah, uh, not Moriah, uh, yeah, Mara bitterness and they complained to God that the water was bitter and they complained that they were going to die of thirst because God couldn't keep them and he took them out of Egypt so they could kill them so right from right from the beginning they're griping even before they crossed the Red Seas you remember what they said Moses you took us out of Egypt so that the, the Egyptian could kill us out here in the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt for us you know they have and God said and Moses said be still and watch God work Every time they faced a trial, the population of the people blamed God, rebelled, griped, and did not seek God. And they did not see his mercy over and over and over. How many times is it so easy to put the blinders on and not see what God is doing in our life? And this is what I share with us so many times. We need to be very careful when God is blessing us. We need to be very careful that we don't start thinking that the blessing is normal. And somehow I brought this on myself. You know, look how smart I was. I managed to work this out and get these blessings. And eventually, if we want to take that attitude, God will say, well, let's just see how long these blessings keep going when I take my hand off for a little while. And then... Everything goes wrong in our life and we go, oh God, you know, sometimes we'll repent and come to God in, rep uh, in repentance and say, God, I'm sorry. Other times we'll go, God, why are you letting this happen? And that's what the world usually does. You know, God, why, do the, why are you letting all these innocent people suffer through this activity or that activity? Why am I suffering? Because, you know, and God is saying, I'm teaching you a lesson. I'm teaching you this lesson. And he says, these people, you've been a rebellious people since the moment you left Egypt. And then he goes on, also in Horeb. And where is Horeb? Moriah. No, it's not Moriah. Moriah is Calvary and Sinai. What is Horeb? Or not Sinai. It's, uh, it is Sinai. Mount Horeb is uh, Calvary and Golgotha and Jerusalem, Zion. Horeb is Sinai. You're, did you say Sinai? I'm sorry. I misheard. Yes, Sinai. 
He says, you provoked me to wrath in Sinai. And he goes through the whole story about how God wrote with the finger of God on the, on the stone. And took Abraham, took Isaac. No, that's Moriah. <laughs> not Sinai. Yeah. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Zion, Calvary, Moriah are all the hill of Jerusalem. Golgotha is part of that. Uh, Sinai and Horeb is where the law was given out. They still talk about the Sinai. The Sinai Peninsula, usually, because we don't know where the Mount Sinai. Yeah, we don't don't really know where the Sinai Mountain was anymore. So he says, you provoked me. He said, I went up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. God spoke with me. He talked with me. He wrote the tablets. And then in verse 12, I love this. The Lord said, arise, get you quickly from here for your people, which you have brought forth out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves and are quickly turned aside out of the way which I have commanded them. And they have made a molten image. And remember, we, we've been talking about this, especially in Exodus. We saw this. And a little bit in numbers where God keeps, every time they're misbehaving, God says to Moses, they're your people. Yeah, your people. They're your people, Moses. And Moses will come back to God. It's almost a game they're playing and go, oh, no, they're not my people. They're your people, God. You took them out. And you see that kind of a game going on in here. And, and Moses, I think, is putting, you know, thinking back. He's probably even with a smile on this, you know, because he's, he's realized it, when the first time it happened, it wasn't so much of a game. You know, it's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want these to be my people. They're waving, you know. But it got to be almost a game, and I brought that out, how it really did appear to be a game where God would say, they're your people, and Moses would turn around, oh, they're not mine, they're yours. See that uh, reference to that, and he says they've corrupted themselves. Again, we're less than a month out of, Egypt at, at, when they were in Mount Sinai and they were already worshiping a golden calf. Why did they, if you remember the story, why did they do that? They go, this guy Moses, he's been gone a long time. Perhaps he died up there on that mountain with all that fire and lightning. You know, Aaron, make us a God that can be our, to be our God that delivered us. And so quickly they turned from God. And we want to be careful as we, as we even point our fingers at them at this point because they've been in captivity for over 200 years. They haven't had the, time, the, the ability to worship God the way that they wanted to or should have because they're under captivity. And what's around them is all the pagan ideas that were going on in Egypt, all the hundreds of gods. And this is the same thing for us as Christians. If we do not walk with other Christians and spend time with them and spend time in church, we will not follow God the way we're supposed to because we will be walking with the world and, and it is so much easier for our flesh and our soul to grab the way of the world because we already think that way. We tend to think that way already and then when they reinforce that thinking, we draw and gravitate to it. Hardest thing I find with Christians is to try to get them into a biblical way of thinking. And things as simple as, as evolution and creationism. We're bombarded with the idea of millions of years and millions of years. And if you're not careful, I have found many Christians who believe in millions of years, not because they believe it even, it just slips into them, into their language because they like science and all the science books talk about millions of years. They watch the 
the nature shows and every nature show. I can't watch a nature show anymore because I get so sick of the millions of years and it came from this and it came from that and you know, none of it is science and yet it's taught as if it's an absolute fact. And if you fill your mind with that, you're going to slip into that way of thinking without even realizing that you've done it. But we fill our minds with the wrong stuff and we start just gently. How many Christians have no problem with divorce because divorce is becoming so rampant in our world that it's just an automatic. Well, everybody does it. You know, God hates divorce. If we start getting into the Bible and taking God's prospect on it, you know, if it's in the past, it's under the blood, forgiven and forgotten, you get, you know, let it go. But if you end up in going forward, you follow God's way of doing things and says he hates divorce. He hates fornication. He hates adultery. He hates homosexuality. He hates murder. You know, and we've got to be careful that we don't start picking up the world's way of thinking on these topics because Satan is a liar and he tries to twist everything that God says. Well, that's one that came, keeps coming up. The images in, in their day was what actually came up. Nowadays, we don't, we don't usually worship images. We, let, we just let things and, and items get to be more important to us than God. For many people, work becomes an idol. And that's not saying that work is bad. We all need to work. But when you're working all the time and sacrificing your family for work, there's a problem with that. And we don't literally mean killing them and putting them on the altar. That they did in the Old Testament. The, the god Moloch was the god of industry. And you literally would sacrifice your kids to him and put them in the fire as a, as a blessing. But how many people have sacrificed their family to work? For all practical purposes, they've sacrificed their family and lose their family as they get older because... They don't want to be around them because you didn't care about me when I was younger. Why do I want to be around you now that you're old? How many people have sacrificed just about everything in their life, maybe even for TV? I've seen people so addicted to TV that there is, no, there is nothing else in their life as they're sitting there watching TV. Anything can be an idol to us. For some, it becomes drugs and alcohol or even sex that can become, become these things for people. They just got to have these things more than they need God. And God is saying, I want you to get rid of all those idols and make me number one. That doesn't mean every one of those things is bad. A little bit of TV is not bad. <laughs> Work in moderation is not bad. Food in moderation is not bad. But if all you do is eat, that is not a good place to be. And so God is saying, I am your God. You will have no other gods before me. And for us, we don't have gods that we normally bow down to and offer, offer sacrifices to in the sense that the Bible talks about. But there are lots of things we offer sacrifices to. You know, there are people who just will not get up to work because they're so busy watching their TV. Why are you late? Well, I had to watch the end of my show. But then God said in verse 14, let me alone, he told Moses, that I may destroy them. God on several occasions was ready to destroy the Israelites. Blot out their name and he says, And Moses, I will make you a great nation. This is where Moses really shows how much of a leader he is with God, between his, for his people. Because in the story we go back to, he goes, God, you can't destroy these people because if you destroy these people, your name will be mud in front of these people. They'll go, well, he can take his people out of Egypt, but he couldn't deliver them to their land. 
God, you just can't do this. You're going to have to show them mercy for your name's sake. Okay? And it worked, and, and, and God did some discipline to them, but, but God, and Moses is saying, no, God, don't do that. I, want, I care about your name. How many times do we let some things go just because we want to honor God's name? God, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this because I don't want to see your name drug through the mud. How many times do we see Christians fighting amongst themselves over stupid things, dragging God's name through the mud as people look at them and saying, what's wrong with those guys? I thought they were, I thought they were supposed to be the good guys. And look at them fighting and arguing and bickering. And what are they fighting and biting and bickering over? What color are the carpet's going to be? You know, it's sometimes building, building new buildings is some of the worst things to break up churches, you know. What color is the building going to be? What color is the rug going to be? What color are the curtains going to be? And it splits churches over something as dumb as that. And Moses here is saying, God, I know they deserve to be punished. I know you deserve that you're, you are right, God, to be angry with them. But if you destroy them, your name, your name is going to suffer. Your name is going to suffer. One thing I've learned over the years is I don't always have to be right about things. And even on doctrines that I'm very, very opinionated on, I don't have to be right on those, on those arguments because God is a, well able to defend himself. Well able to defend himself. He doesn't need us trying to figure out and, and work on it. Now, we can present the case and then let people choose what they're going to believe. But we don't have to sit there and always be right because God is able to defend. And, not, and we've been teaching that in the Psalms class. God is our defense. He's our shelter. He's our strong tower. He, he says, just hide in me, and he will be the one that, that protects us. And if he can protect us, he can protect himself. He can protect the word. He can protect everything. He doesn't need us trying to defend him. Now, he does on the same, same side tell us, be ready to give an answer for what we believe. And when I'm talking to people, I will tell them what I believe and I will tell them why I believe it and leave it at that. It's up to them whether they want to believe it or not. It doesn't matter to me if they want to disagree with God because God is able to defend himself. I will just tell them what I believe, why I believe, and then they can sit there and argue with God if they want. Now, you lose. <laughs> you lose in the end if you want to argue with God. You will always lose. But God is saying here, you know, I am going to destroy these people. Moses turned around and said, don't. And in verse 15, so I went down and from the mountain, from the, from the mount that burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And I looked, and behold, they had sinned against the Lord. You had sinned against the Lord your God, and you had made a molten calf, and you had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And remember, they were dancing around and naked and having an orgy and all this stuff in this worship of the golden calf when Moses came down off the mountain. They had totally turned away from God and not that they had ever really turned to him in the first place. And he says, I took the two tables and cast them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes and I fell down before the Lord and as at the first 40 days and 40 nights and I did neither eat bread or drink water because of all your sins which you were sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him into anger. 
For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened to me, but this time also. Okay? He says, and remember, one of the things we've learned about Moses over this period of time is Moses has a temper. Moses has a pretty bad temper. And we see this over and over again. He comes off the mountain and he sees them sinning and he breaks the commandments that God put in his hand. Then he crushes them up and he just crushes the, the golden calf and he pours it in the water and he makes them drink that water with all that stuff mixed in it. And, but he says in this verse that he was afraid for the people. He knew that God's great desire was to destroy the people. But he had asked God to have mercy. And now he's at the bottom of the hill seeing how bad it is now. He's almost ready for them to, to be judged. You know, because he sees how, you know, and if he sees how evil it looks, he's starting to realize, okay, I'm a, I'm a sinful being. And this is something we need to remember. When we start seeing the sinfulness of something, we need to multiply that by probably a thousand times to even begin to get to what God sees when he looks at this. When we see the evilness, the sin of something, God sees it so much more intensely than we do because he is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. And it's only through the blood of Christ that he can look down. And Moses, seeing this, was afraid that the Lord was going to destroy them. And he went right onto his face and was praying for them. And then he goes... And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. Because remember, Aaron's the one that made that calf. And I've told you, you know, Aaron had probably the worst, worst excuse ever in the world. He goes, I threw the gold in and out walked this calf. You know, and if anybody believed that, they would have been totally foolish. And, and he's trying to make Moses believe that he threw this in and somehow miraculously a calf came out of the fire. And... Uh, and it says in verse 21, And I took your sins and the calf and I made you, and I made, that you had made and burned with fire and stamped it on the ground into very small, even until it was as small as dust, and I cast the dust in the brook that descended from the mountain. And then it says, At Taboroth and Massa and Gibratha Ta'ava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And you probably don't remember these places at all, or you might remember these places. But at at Taberatha, God sent fire upon the people because they had provoked him. At Massah, we saw that they were complaining about water. They did this a lot, complained about water, and God sent a plague amongst them. And then uh, at Kibrathatava, that is where they asked for quail. They were tired of of manna and they wanted quail and if you remember the story they were stuffing their mouths full of quail and it kind of indicates that they weren't even cooking it they were just so hungry and 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 even if they were cooking it it was they weren't draining all the blood out they were they were just stuffing their mouths with all this quail and it says while the while the quail was still in their nostrils God sent a plague that killed thousands of them okay many times God killed thousands of the people because of the plague because of their disobedience and God still does that to this day there will be plagues and and natural disasters that kill people because of the sin of the nation 
And we're seeing this in America. As America becomes more and more sinful and draws further and further away from God, we're seeing more and more natural disasters, more and more deaths, more tornadoes, more, more earthquakes, everything in places that we've never seen them in. And why? Because God is trying to get our attention to say, repent. Repent. Turn back to him. And, God, and Jesus said, in the end times, there will be earthquakes and, and weather in diverse places where it doesn't, it doesn't normally have. And how many earthquakes have we had in, right here in Arizona in the last few years? Oklahoma, Baltimore had an earthquake. You know, just outside of Baltimore had an earthquake. Uh, all these places that have never seen earthquakes because they're outside of the normal earthquake region are seeing earthquakes. Tornadoes all over the place that don't see tornadoes. Right here in Arizona, I think there's been like four or five just this year. And we don't see, we don't see tornadoes around here. Yeah. This is all, I believe, a re response to pe people turning away from God and God saying, all right, you want to reject me? Let me show you my power. And we know that he's going to do that in Revelation because Revelation is all about that natural activities that are going to destroy. But it says these names, and then it says, verse 23, Likewise, when the Lord sent you to Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the lands which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you believed him not, nor hearkened unto his voice. And Kadesh Barnea was when they were 40 years before this period of time when they were supposed to go into the promised land. And they sent the spies in, the spies came back, and, and the spies, all, all 12 spies said, it's a great land, it's, got, it's land flowing with milk and honey. And remember, they brought the cluster of grapes that it took two on a pole between two people, and they brought the melons that they, that they, that they could only carry one, one melon per person. You know, they're bringing all this stuff, and they go, it's a great land. It's a, it is everything God says. He says, but the 10 of them say, but... There's these giants there, and we just can't beat them. We look like grasshoppers to them. And God judged them and said, fine, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until everybody from 20 years up is dead. And your children will get to go into the land. And then he says, verse 24, you have been a rebellious. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. And this is Moses talking at this point. Because you've just been a rebellious people. You just can't bend your heart to God. And this is something that we look at. The lost person has to bend their will to God and let God be their Lord. And without that happening, they are not saved. They are not going to heaven because God will not allow the rebellious person to be rewarded. Verse 25, thus I fell down before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and I fell down the first, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed therefore to the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your inheritance, which you have redeemed through your greatness, which, have, which you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt. He says, you've redeemed them, don't destroy them. You paid a great price for these people. God has paid a great price for us. He desires us to turn to him. He desires to give us grace until we finally get it through our thick skulls, who's, who's boss, and, and bow, our, bow our heart. And even when we're Christians, it takes a long time sometimes to totally bow and give our life over to him. 
Sometimes it takes longer for some people than others. Some people do it quicker. But it takes time to totally surrender to God because he's going to crucify our flesh and he's going to say, I want to show you some things. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to really trust God. Even though he's proven himself trustworthy over and over and over again, sometimes it's hard for us to bend our hearts and just trust him. Verse 27, remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sins, lest the land, lest the land whence you brought us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. And this is where Moses is again telling them, the only reason I got God not to kill you is because we were protecting his, his reputation. Not because you did anything that deserved it. Not because you, because you didn't. And he's gone through this whole chapter was to show them, don't even think you deserve this. You kept, you were in rebellion every step of the way. And this is true. How many times do we as a people, and even in our day, we be, that we spend time being in rebellion against God? Every step of the way in many cases. We go for a few little while following him, and then we get into rebellion, and God gives us mercy, and he gives us grace. And we get walking in the right direction again, and then we get into rebellion, and God says, oh, you're so lucky I love you. It's so good that I love you because if, you didn't, if I didn't love you, you would not be in existence. And we need to be able to understand that. God's love for us and his graciousness for us. That even when we fall, he picks us up, brushes us off, cleanses us up, puts us back in the place and said, all right, here you go, get back, <laughs> get walking again. Why? Because he loved us and he's forgiven us. And he's given us eternal life. And what he gives, he doesn't take away. And this is something we have to understand and learn. God wants to bless us. He wants to. Why does he want to? Because he loves us. That's the only reason he wants to. Not because I have done a lot of good things and deserve it. Because no matter what we've done, we don't deserve anything from God other than punishment. And this is why we need to fully understand whatever we've done that's good is still not good according to God's standards. And everything that was bad is not, is, none of it is good. And, and there's a great division between, even from the human side of good and bad, but from God's perspective, they're both the other side of the world from his, from his standard. Even though they're quite a distance apart of, by our standard, they're, uh, they're for a long ways by his standard. Because his standard is perfection. And we can't live up to perfection except through Jesus Christ. And that's because he lived perfect and put his righteousness on us. And that last verse says, Yet they are your people and your inheritance, which you bought out of the mighty power and by your outstretched arm. God's, Moses reminded him, God, you delivered them. You can't get rid of them now because your reputation is at stake. And this is why God uses us even when we have absolutely no reason to be used. Because he bought us. He has investment put into us. He has his testimony lying, lying out there. When we, quote, when we tell people we're a Christian and that God is good, 
people watch us. And when, even when we fail, they get to watch God be good. And it just shows them God can use anybody. God used the Israelites, even though they did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. God used David. And David did a lot of good things for God at times, but he also did a lot of bad things. Uh, adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, the denial of all of this, the lies that it took. And God still used David and said, he's a man after my heart. Why? Because when, God, when David loved God, he loved him completely. And even when he failed, he finally, he finally would come to his senses and repent. In the issue with Bathsheba and Uriah, it took, it took over nine months for that to happen, probably closer to a year, a year of being out of fellowship with God. And then we want to judge somebody who gets out of fellowship with God and say, well, there's something wrong with that person. Look at that. They're not following God. Well, a whole lot of people used in the Bible didn't follow God very well. Look at Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. And God gave him a promise of the promise, you know, the promise of Abraham was put on him. And he spent lots of years trying to manipulate people and not be a good example. We look at the children of Israel wandering around, not being a good example, and God says, I'm still going to use you. God will use us in spite of ourselves because he wants to get honor. And by using those who don't deserve it, he gets great honor. Because of his mercy and his grace that he pours out on us, he gets the honor. Because people look at it and say, wow, look at what, look what God's doing with that person. Boy, I didn't know God would ever use that person. And sometimes we get to know people at the tail end of their life after they've learned all their lessons. And we didn't know them during the beginning of their life when they were going through all the hard lessons and falling flat on their face and rebelling against God and falling flat and God's still using them. And then we get to meet them at, at the, after they seem to have things a little more together. Because as we grow, as God changes us, we will get to be more like him, even in our daily walk. And people can look at us and say, you know, that's what a Christian's supposed to be like for the most part. But even those people are going to fail. Even the ones that seem to get their life together are going to fail. They're going to have bad, bad things that they do. They're going to be harsh and unkind. They're going to be unloving at times. They're, they're going to not be the picture of Christ. And God is still going to use them. Even though, even though they fail, God uses them. You know, we look at Peter. You know, Peter stands up and says, I'll never, I'll never deny you, Jesus. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane against an army, Peter stands up with a sword. Cuts, you know, he's ready to fight in Gethsemane. Jesus goes down into the garden and he's denying him three times. And who is he denying him to? The last one was a little, it's, it, it describes as a little girl. Is the one he starts cursing, uh, cursing to. Okay. He's ready to fight in Gethsemane and just a couple hours later he's afraid of girls. That have no, no weapons, no, no, you know. Surely you're one of his followers and he's cursing at them. You know. That shows you how easily we can fall. Peter fully meant to defend God, to, uh, Jesus, to the death. He was ready to, but when he's in, you know, down in the courtyard, Jesus has been arrested, and, and it's obvious that he's going to die. All of a sudden, his determination starts to, to waver. We do the same thing. If we take our eyes off God and off of his word, we'll waver. 
and most likely fall, because that's our nature. It is our nature for that to happen. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to lift up your word and to, to seek after you. And we ask you to go with us as we go about our business in the next, over the next couple of days. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.